In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews sports journalist Jackson Thompson. Here's a snippet from their conversation. But the thing that'll make you a great journalist isn't the quality of writing; it's the quality of the information. And to get good quality information, uh, you gotta something you gotta go outside your comfort zones a lot. If especially you know if, if you've never sourced, you know if you're you know a talkative person and you like gossiping and stuff like that, you might have an advantage. But anyone who who has curiosity can get good quality information, and that's really what makes a good journalist. Um, another thing is. Uh, you know, just <laughs> this is a little bit of a, a more cynical advice, but just be prepared for an industry that's a lot more punishing, especially in modern times than things like finance and pharmaceuticals and and, uh, you know, engineering. I mean, engineering is very I don't want to undersell how difficult these other professions are. But, you know, in journalism, you're not necessarily going to get taken care of the way you would in some other industries. So just be prepared for, you know, some long nights, some long, long years, long stretches of time, um, job hunting. And just, uh, you know, work, be prepared to put in a lot of work because that's that's what it takes to be a journalist in uh, 2021. Well, hello there and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Jackson Thompson is a sports writer for Insider. His articles tend to focus on the health and the rights of athletes and on the business angles of modern sports. Jackson's work has also been featured in the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated. Over the course of his career, he's covered the NFL, college football, college basketball, horse racing, and New Jersey high school sports. In this episode of the podcast, Jackson shares some interesting tales of sports journalism, and he recounts the time he covered the Hambletonian Stakes, one of America's most famous harness racing competitions. Okay, so Jackson, many people all over the world follow sports. We're interested in sports. We talk about sports. We have favorite teams and favorite players. What drew you to sports as a writer and as a journalist? So I played football in high school, actually, and um, I've always wanted to be into writing. That was my thing. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be an author of some kind. Uh, and then when I started playing sports, um, you know, football, and I, you know, I've always watched baseball very closely. I started to notice every every sport, every game, every team, every season kind of has its own, uh, you know, stories within itself. And those are stories that could be told. Uh, a lot of them don't get told. Um, so you know, why not tell them? Why not tell the ones that haven't been told? So I, I started out uh, obviously my high school newspaper um, and then uh, my community college newspaper but I I really started out covering high school sports because you know if I'm not going to be the one telling those stories no one will because it's high school there's not really a huge spotlight uh, on those things and I really enjoyed covering high school sports it was a very wholesome way of doing it um, and, uh, but, you know, over time I, I started to grow an appreciation for like the, you know, bigger storylines across, you know, the mainstream sports scene, college sports, professional sports. And then, uh, you know, the, the big thing I do now is athletes, former athletes, uh, and, you know, just kind of their ventures in the post sports world, how they apply, um, you know, what they did and what they learned during their playing career to things like business and medicine and health and whatever else they're into. Cause if former athletes are involved in anything, they can do anything because, you know, obviously playing sports and the work it takes to be an athlete at the college or professional level can be applied to just about any other industry in America. So that's kind of my big focus now is, is finding those stories that aren't really told yet. 
I really love that you brought that uh, the idea up of uh, you know of seeing athletes as Renaissance people. Um, mm-hmm. They they are uh, you know I, I played sports. My both my kids uh, played sports, and I know that it was a really important part of their lives. And it would and I think it helped make them uh, or help them to become more complete or more uh, well-rounded people. I'm searching for the right word here. Holistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, there's a lot there. You're right. Uh, so, Jackson, you also write about the business side of sports. And uh, there's no question that sports has become big business. But the story of modern sports is also about small business and athletes who aren't famous. Can you break that down for us and talk a little bit about, you know, the difference between the big, big leagues and the, the smaller leagues? Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, when you talk about the smaller, lesser known athletes, it usually comes back around to college sports uh, because, you know, those are athletes playing at, you know, the highest level of their of their age and level. Um, but it, it doesn't always have the same spotlight you see at the Olympics or the NFL or the NBA or uh, professional soccer overseas. And, uh, you know, it, they do all the same work that someone who does go on to play in the NFL or NBA does. They just might not get as much attention. But now with the NIL ruling um, that the NCAA has just passed, they can at ver- the very least get some kind of attention uh, and they can make money off of it, uh, you know, by by leasing their likeness to promote products. And, you know, obviously everyone knows about the big shoe deals in the NBA and, you know, everyone's seen, a, everyone's seen the Wheaties boxes and, you know, the... You you know, uh, insurance commercials, you might see NFL quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning. Um, but there's also a lot of small businesses in America that can now also, uh, you know, get their products promoted by athletes out in the heartland of America in states like, you know, let's say Nebraska or, uh, you know, North Dakota, where, you know, college sports and small business, that's their thing. They don't have, you know, big professional teams out there. They don't have big, uh, you know, uh, uh, retail giants like Nike and Adidas out there. What they have are small businesses, whether it be warehouses, whether it be IT or manufacturing or trucking or, you know, even like delis and stuff like that. And they have their their college athletes. They, they might play at the University of Nebraska or an even smaller school out there. And regardless, you know, when you're an athlete, and you're, uh, you know, in, a, in a, a community like that, you're the big you're the big hero in that community because, you know, they, they don't really have a whole lot else. So when you're the big hero in the community uh, at that age and you have businesses that appreciate, um, you know, your reputation, then you should be allowed to, you know, partner with them to make money. And this is uh, for the first time in the history of American college sports. We're finally seeing that and without, you know, repercussions like there's been in the past. Right. Right. And you're raising a really good point there because... The, um, you know, uh, college athletes have a, a limited shelf life. They're perishable. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I almost said they're perishable commodities, but I, I, I don't want to use the word commodity to a human being. But, but mm-hmm. in the market, they are, they are perishable. And what people don't understand is that, particularly for college athletes, there's a, there's a very narrow time limit in which they can make money. And as we were saying before, most of them do not go on to professional sports. Mm-hmm. And this is their chance. And and you're right. Uh, I, I went to school in upstate New York, and we had a uh, we had a professional hockey team in town, the Clinton Comets. And uh, you know, <laughs> everyone on the Comets, I think, made an appearance at the local hardware store, at the local pizzeria. You know, they were really an economic part of the community, and we were happy to see them. And it was nice seeing the fact that they could make you know small amounts of cash for you know, showing up for, uh, you know, when a new dry cleaner opened or something like that. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's it's about as American as it gets. If you ever watched, uh, you know, especially in high school sports, you know, I remember all the time, even when I played, everyone in in town wanted us to sell coupons for their, uh, you know, their their uh, their services, and we did a lot of that, you know, fundraising, and sometimes we'd even get free meals. But we could obviously, you know, we could never get paid. We're high school athletes, and we're just kind of doing it because, you know, when you're when you're young, you're you're supposed to, you know, go through the the ropes and like not necessarily have the access to the same rights that adults do uh but it, the, the community was very much there the attachment you know I'm, I'm from a small town in new jersey heights town and, you know, even though our football team wasn't great like we my senior year we won three games and that was uh, a big improvement <laughs> over the last two decades so you know but even then you know everyone always came out you saw uh you know the local business owners especially they would shut down on friday nights because they wanted to come watch us and then you know, so every once in a while they'd supply us a meal or anything like that so it, you know it's a very very um intrinsic part in american culture that you don't really see in other countries you know obviously other countries have their sports and their athletes and their stars and they have their businesses but it, it's not the same way in america where you have that kind of you know every high school in america plays football every high school in america uh you know has that um you know i would say just about every high school has that connection with their community and those businesses in that community so uh, it's it's something's very unique to this country and um you know at the college level at least we're now seeing the ncaa acknowledge that and allow them to prosper in a, in a capitalistic way which you know they should so talk to us a little bit about uh nil reform nil uh by the way stands for name image likeness Talk mm-hmm. to us about uh, NIL reform and, and how it's opened up new opportunities for college athletes. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you have to go back to see the start of, you know, the, the seeds of this goes back, you know, 10, 20 years. There have been lawsuits. There was a gentleman named Jeremy Bloom who sued the NCAA um, because they revoked his college football eligibility because he didn't even he didn't even make money off his football likeness. He made money because he was an Olympic skier. And they said, if you make money off your name, image, and likeness in, in any capacity, then you're in trouble. So they completely stripped him of his uh, his eligibility, and then he sued the NCAA. He ultimately lost, but you know he's a gentleman that's been working very much as an activist toward uh, NIL reform. And then finally, you know, after the many years of, of pressure and uh, you know just kind of people coming to their senses, in 2019, you saw that you know the NCAA introduced their first proposal uh, for NIL reform to let college athletes make money off their uh, their name image and likeness um and that you know kind of stalemated for an entire year and a half and until you know over the and over the course of that time you saw these states like florida and texas and alabama they they were passing their own laws their state laws to let college athletes make money off nil and they were just kind of circumventing you know the ncaa's rules you know you're the ncaa but we're the government even if we're a state government we have the authority to let our college athletes make money from sponsorships so uh, that was a big uh, pressure point for the NCAA because if they don't necessarily want, you know, other uh, institutions like state governments, you know, circumventing their laws, uh, especially, you know, if it, if it creates disparity, then that creates issues for recruiting for a lot of college programs in the states that didn't have those legislation, legislative reforms coming. And then also uh, the NCAA was could have gotten a ton of lawsuits from college athletes, you know, outside of those states if if those laws went into effect, and that's something they don't want. Um, so, you know, they uh, basically that all kind of came to an head. Um, there was one instance where 
uh, NCAA president, Mark Emmert, went to Congress just a couple months ago and said, we need Congress to introduce a reform that, and what they were specifically hoping for is something that included, uh, you know, things that prevented those lawsuits from coming the NCAA's way. That was their big emphasis. And, you know, Cory Booker, who's a senator, he said, you know, we we don't necessarily need federal reform. Let the states do it. And whatever consequences the NCAA has to face, let them face and let them deal with it on their own. Uh, and then, you know, obviously Mark Emmert and the coaches that showed up, they wanted the Senate to do it because then it's universal. They're pretty much doing their job for them and they can protect them from those lawsuits. Uh, and the Senate was never going to get something out in time for July 1st, which was when the first state laws were going to go into effect. So um, Mark Emmert decided, you know, I'm the president of the NCAA. I just have the executive authority to put uh, a, a law into place that temporarily allows the college athletes to make money off of NIL because the rest of the NCAA, the council and all the other governing bodies, they weren't making too much progress on it. So Mark Emmert, as the president, just kind of had to put his own policy into effect. And that went into effect on July 1st alongside the state laws. And that just granted it to everybody for the time being. Now, that's that's an interim policy. I don't expect you know college athletes to lose that ability. But over time, uh, a more permanent plan will go into effect and uh you know it's i think the industry is going to keep growing um but also you know there's a lot of former college athletes out there who've lost their eligibility who have suffered uh you know a lot of financial consequences maybe didn't graduate college because they weren't allowed to do it back then so and their voices need to be heard too whether that results in lawsuits against the ncaa you know only time will tell but you know the ncaa just did lose a, a lawsuit in supreme court so you know they're not invincible you know i'd say uh you know uh, judges and lawyers and, and lawmakers, they, they're not going to cut them too many breaks just because they're the NCAA. So we'll see, uh, you know, that storyline pan out over the course of the next couple of years too. Wow. You recapped that really well. Thank you. That's uh, th- that was really brilliant. Um, generally speaking, what are your favorite kinds of stories to write? My favorite kinds of stories to write are definitely profiles. Uh, ever since I, you know, I first got into it when I was a teenager, those, you know, those personal stories. And then sometimes there's, you know, profiles that kind of profile more than one person, you know, intersecting, uh, you know, different, different, uh, you know, different personal stories that may intersect and, you know, they, their lives have consequences on one another. Um, but usually it's the singular uh, person. That's, that's always usually the big one I covered uh, for insider. Some of the best athletes I've talked to were some of the, you know, my personal favorite interviews with CC Sabathia who pitched for the Yankees, uh, Rod, Roger Clemens who pitched for the Yankees, Red Sox, Astros for a very long time. Um, Calvin Johnson, uh, who played wide receiver in the NFL, one of the greatest wide receivers of all time. In my opinion, he's like from a pure talent perspective, he was the most dominant player <laughs> to ever play football. You know, if you watch his highlights, you kind of know what I mean. But he actually uh, retired from the NFL very early and he started his own marijuana business, which is, you know, kind of interesting. So I, you know, I was able to get in touch with him and profile him and his journey with, with that. And that was one of my favorite profiles I've written. I love and, that uh, story. Yeah, I, I I read I read your profile of uh, Calvin uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and and his marijuana business. Tell us a little bit more about that because I, I found it absolutely fascinating. And and what did you learn, uh, you know, about his journey? Oh well, you know he um, you know he grew up in a community where where marijuana was very stigmatized. You know, it was you know his mom never wanted him to do it. He so he didn't do it at all when he was younger. 
uh, until he got to college. Then when he was in college, he tried it for the first time and he realized, you know, this is not this evil thing I've been told my entire life. And then, so he did it regularly. And then when he got to the professional level um, and, you know, it's much tougher, much more physical, uh, more dangerous. And he was suffering pain on a regular basis. He had, he had to take it after games because it would help them cope with the pain. And he still took the pain. You know, the NFL gives their players a lot of painkillers, a lot of painkillers. And, um, you know, him, uh, Calvin and uh, a couple other players like Terrell Davis, who I've spoken to as well, you know, they they're trying to, you know, get the facts out there. The science behind these painkillers uh, are, are, are bad. You know, they're not healthy. There was there have been there was a lawsuit against the NFL a couple of years ago because they didn't disclose what the side effects of these painkillers were. Uh, but. You know, they both work in the cannabis space. Terrell Davis has his own CBD product. Calvin has his own, uh, you know, fully hallucinogenic marijuana product. And they they want to work with the NFL to help introduce more uh, holistic painkilling remedies, you know, from cannabis, from other from other things like that. So, I, you know, I didn't I knew he's what kind of player he was. I knew he uh, started a marijuana business, but I didn't. This is he taught me about the science of it. He taught me about uh, the science of it and how it you know how it related to him and his playing career and other players as well. Um, so that's also something over the next couple of years you could see a, a widespread change in not just the NFL but other professional sports leagues like the NBA and baseball and hockey, um, CBD and cannabis products phasing out those painkillers that have proven to be pretty dangerous. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of my one of my friends uh, switched from opioids to uh, to marijuana. And I can't tell you what a beneficial difference it's made in her life. Uh, you know, this is a, somebody who suffered, you know, long-term pain through no fault of her own. And, uh, you know, and I just remember the difference between when she stopped using prescription painkillers and, and started smoking more pot. And, you know, she she is a, like a, a totally different and, you know, much more healthy person now. So. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm totally with you on that. Um, so tell us about the uh, Clyde Hurt journalism program at Rutgers. Uh, that sounds oh, yeah. cool. And yeah, it wasn't. It actually wasn't at Rutgers. It was just oh. this program. Uh, I, I found out about it through Rutgers. But oh, okay. Back in back in 2019, Clyde Hurt was, of course, a uh, you know a horse uh, breeder, a trainer. And, um, you know, this workshop has been going on for many years. Um, I got a chance to be a part of it in summer, late July, early August of 2019 for a week. And I uh, basically I got to spend the week learning about the Hambletonian and horse racing. Um, and that was also the same week I first went to uh, Giants, New York Giants training camp, because that was one of the perks of the workshop. And I got to meet some folks there and, you know, spending a day at an NFL training camp is awesome. You know, if you're a college kid and you want to get into that kind of uh, business. Uh, and then on the last day of the workshop, we the Hambletonian happened and we got to cover it. And it was it was an unbelievable race. You know, the entire week we spent, uh, you know, learning about it, the background of these racers and, you know, previewing it. And the big storyline here was that there were two favorites, Green Shoe and Jim Pansee, and one was something of a sure bet, and the other was more of a wild card. Jim Pansee was the horse that never lost, but he was like less powerful. He was the perfect uh, horse in terms of his, you know, behavior and everything. Green Shoe was the horse that was, you know, a little bit. He would go off the rails and and kind of like uh, disobey his trainer and his rider. But he was just genetically the more powerful horse. He had that speed that just you know everyone thought was unbeatable. And the race went, um, and neither of the horses won. It was an underdog, like a, a it was like thirty to one odds from Canada. It was his name was Forbidden Trade, 
he won the race. No one, he wasn't even supposed to finish in the top five. And it was just like, you know, <laughs> that's when I learned, you know, this is how the business works. You know, you spend all week planning uh, to write about one of these two horses winning. And then, you know, something no one expected happened. And it was a much better story. It was, I was so happy when, when he won because, you know, the politics of these two horses and just, you know, it was so soured on me. And to see this uh, underdog win the race, uh, it was like 30 to one odds. It was, it was an unbelievable story. And I got to cover it right up there. Um, I got to cover it for Matt Pepin at the Boston Globe. It was uh, on the Boston Globe website the next day. And I had never covered any type of horse racing before, you know, it was, that was my first time. And it was very interesting it was a much more complicated sport than anything i'd covered football baseball nothing is more complicated than horse racing nothing's more difficult to watch and like actually dissect what's going on you know it's so fast-paced everything is overlapping and there's a lot of numbers involved just with recounting you know previous races and everything so that was a big challenge for me but it was uh it paid off because when the race happened and this upset happened i was prepared to write about it and it ended up being a great story one of the most interesting sporting events i've ever witnessed and it was it was horse racing you know it was the hamiltonian you know I'd, it's not necessarily stuff they recount on espn sports center top 10 at night every night or it doesn't you know, necessarily show up on the back page of all the newspapers in the world so it was it was cool it was a fun experience i think that um the the general public doesn't understand how uh how difficult it is to cover a sporting event because it's never just one event it's it's just it's like the crest of a wave that, mm-hmm. that started a long time ago in other words like the, the statistics and this the uh the treasure trove or the you know the database behind the game today's game the database sometimes stretch stretches back like a hundred years mm-hmm. oh man it's one it's the oldest sport in america it's the first sport that was covered by newspapers actually was horse racing not um, what i covered was harness racing you know old school horse racing with the whips and everything that was the first sport that was ever covered in newspapers in america so it's yeah it's it's a classic right up there with you know baseball and boxing wow yeah so um jackson what advice do you have for young writers and people who want to become journalists um you know never stop footworking on the quality of your of your writing you know writing quality is important for journalism but the thing that'll make you a great journalist isn't the quality of writing it's the quality of the information and to get good quality information uh you gotta something you gotta go outside your comfort zones a lot if especially you know if, if you've never sourced you know if you're you know a, t- a talkative person and you like gossiping and stuff like that you might have an advantage but anyone who who has curiosity can get good quality information and that's really what makes a good journalist um another thing is uh you know, just, this is a little bit of a a more cynical advice, but just be prepared for an industry that's a lot more punishing, especially in modern times than things like finance and pharmaceuticals and, and, uh, you know, engineering. I mean, engineering is very, I don't want to undersell how difficult these other professions are, but, you know, in journalism, you're not necessarily going to get taken care of the way you would in some other industries. So just be prepared for, you know, some long nights, some long, long years, long stretches of time, um, job hunting and just, uh, you know, work, be prepared to put in a lot of work because that's, that's what it takes to be a journalist in uh, 2021. That was my conversation with Jackson Thompson, a sports writer for Insider. Jackson's articles tend to focus on the health and on the rights of athletes and on the modern business angles of the evolving sports universe. His work has been featured in the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated, and I just love how he doesn't mind covering every kind of possible sports story there is. And that, to me, is is the mark of a really good journalist. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to more conversations with Jackson in the future. 
That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.